Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And you're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist. A podcast for human Venn diagrams. Coming at you every single Monday. And hosted by us. Okay, picture a nucleosome. Can you, Christina? Um, no. Yep, neither can I. But thanks to Janet Iwasa, there exists a whole collection of molecular animations to help scientists and non-scientists alike see what our eyes can't. Janet is a data visualization expert and research assistant professor of biochemistry at the University of Utah. She's also a TED fellow and the creator of an open source animation software package for scientists called Molecular Flipbook. Janet tells us how she takes the movies in the minds of research scientists and turns them into dynamic images that reveal the strengths in their hypotheses and the work that's left to do. We discuss how her single-minded focus helped her not only find the confidence in pursuing a path that didn't really exist, but also through that confidence, she attracted others as collaborators and funders for her mission. That's right. And be sure to stick around to the end of the episode for our Dream Molecular Animation Project and tweet us yours. I mean, who doesn't have a dream molecular animation project? I don't know. I don't know who that person is. Also, guess what? What? It's Global Mathematics Week. So check out our Twitter for some awesome resources and math content all week long. Woo! Math content. That's right. Enough said. (laughs) Let's just dive into the episode, shall we? Let's do it. Hi, Christina. Hey, Kate. Hi, Janet. Hi. Welcome. (laughs) This is a very fun episode already because uh, we, as as is customary on a show, are all in different places. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Janet, you are in Utah, right? Yeah, I'm in Salt Lake City. I think you are our first who I has. I think so, actually. Yeah, yeah. Who has kind of from Utah. And Christina, this is your first time uh, doing the show from Minneapolis. 
Milwaukee. The Midwest. Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. Another big M city. Yeah. (laughs) How did you get there? (laughs) As you know, I travel a fair amount for my job at Bionic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the the pleasures of this podcast was we have some very portable podcasting equipment that you just pack in a bag and you can set up anywhere there's a quiet room and a strong internet connection, as I email in our guests. Uh, welcome emails. So uh, by virtue of some, some business travel, um, I got to wake up this morning in Brooklyn, take uh, the Acela train down to Washington, D.C., where I had a one-hour meeting in Bethesda, Maryland, Then I took a taxi to Ronald Reagan International Airport, which is in Virginia, and I flew to Chicago, where I picked up a rental car and then drove to Milwaukee and um, get to to spend the night here. And I have a meeting here tomorrow, and then I drive back to Chicago, fly to Newark, take a Uber to the rental car company there, and then drive to Pennsylvania for a wedding this weekend. So I I think I'm covering something like seven states, six or seven states. Um, Wow. And uh, all in about a 36-hour period. And I, I would just like to point out, because we've talked about my, my scheduling abilities before. It's one of my superpowers. It sure uh, is. I, I made it from Bethesda to Milwaukee uh, with about 18 minutes to spare off of my original <laughs> uh, calculations over a, a six-hour window. Uh, so I feel, I feel pretty good. About myself. I'm a little cocky. I got to be honest. <laughs> well, uh, you you should be uh, because I'll share with Janet and with our listeners that mm-hmm. I am continually impressed at your ability to just be raring to go uh, <laughs> no matter what travel challenges are thrown your way. If listeners remember our live show in Michigan, oh, Christina, yeah. I think you were in a plane that went back and forth and mm-hmm. then hung out in the air for a while. It was it really touch and go. And yet you showed mm-hmm. up with, I think also about like 15 minutes to spare yeah. for that show and yeah. just brought the house Enough down. time to eat a banana and yeah. get on stage. So <laughs> That's right. I think I brought you like some peanut butter on a bagel. You and did. A yeah. Always be <laughs> podcasting is yeah. the, uh, the takeaway. A, B, C. Totally. Oh, my God. Well, gosh. the firm. most exciting thing about this episode, I've got to be honest, I've been I've been thinking about this since I, I saw this on the calendar. By the time this episode comes out, it is going to be, wait for it, Global Mathematics Week. Woohoo! I know. I know. Snaps to that. It's, Love. Um, it's my favorite holiday that I never even knew existed. And <laughs> um, to go along with my favorite holiday that I didn't know existed, I discovered an app called Epsilon Stream that Ooh. pulls together the best math resources on the web and puts it all in one place. They scrape YouTube videos and iOS games and web articles, and it's all been vetted by educators and researchers. So it's real math content and it's free and has no advertising. So I have absolutely no idea how they're paying for all of this work, but wow, super cool resource. All of our math teachers, math students, math adults who love math, check it out, Epsilon Stream. Oh, I love that so much. I um, I know that we have lots of listeners who who will enjoy that app. And I would also reach out to you guys to say, um, we love when you send us cool stuff that you have scraped from the internet about math. So in absolutely. honor of Global Mathematics Week, tweet at us at Admiral Hopper. Send us anything that's mathy and cool. We will be mm-hmm. down to enjoy it. Always. And we'll be retweeting some great content all week. Uh, yep. I think some of Kate's math videos are going to make a repair. <laughs> uh, Hashtag my, math brain. Love I know. <laughs> my my five video uh, will probably yes. show up. So we've got some good stuff out there to share all week long on Twitter. Also exciting, have to give this plug out there, the World Science Foundation is hiring a project director for this new program. I, I think it's new. I haven't heard of it before. Cultivating Genius that cool. focuses on or will focus on introducing gifted math students to a wealth of areas not typically considered mathematical. Everything from like bioinformatics to installation art to finance, uh, all all things math intersecting with other interesting fields. Um, very human Venn diagram So uh, check that out. WorldScienceFestival.com slash jobs. Or you can email them, jobs at worldsciencefestival.com. They're not paying us to say this. I'm just really excited about this job. And I want someone <laughs> awesome 
to have this job. So I am, by virtue of my own interest, sharing this with the world. You're welcome. Yes. By the way, that is so true. All the stuff we geek out to, we just feel really fortunate that we've like stumbled across it or people have sent it to us. Uh, and Christina, that is rad. I know. I, mean, I know. I'm kind of like, oh, that's a really good job. I I've got a really good who... job. I like yeah. my job, but <laughs> that's also a really good job. No, I know. I want to know the person who has that job. So guys, go Kate? for it. <laughs> exactly. Um, Kate, you have some fun uh, math week things to share. Something to do with comedy? Oh my gosh, I do. Well, you know, I've been living and breathing comedy uh, for the last four months slash many years. And so, of course, when math comes up, I always have, th- have been thinking about, you know, how how comedy is mathematical. I, you know, I what I love about math is you can apply it to really everything, right? And since I have just come off of doing a comedy show just a couple of nights ago, you know, I was actually really thinking about laughter and, you know, when you do a live show that you're performing in and hopefully you're getting laughter that you have to hold for when you're performing, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. is the hope, you know, it really does follow this bell curve. We were all talking about like, there is that, there is that peak of laughter. And then, you know, as soon as the, it sort of hits the maximum point or the vertex, if we're speaking parabolically, you know, that's when you want to come in and grab it with your next line. So I really was thinking about that just organically after the show. And it inspired me to look up uh, just this great Abbott and Costello video that I love where they just very wrongly prove why seven times 13 is 28. I will share that on our Twitter because it's really, (laughs) really, really a fun video. No matter how you feel about math, you will just enjoy the like mislogic of this video. And I just love that comedians, you know, decades and decades ago were making funny math content. It always makes me so happy to look back and see that. Um, And then I was just sort of searching around the web and I found this great event that's in L.A. If you happen to be a listener who is out here, I know we have some great ones who came out to our live show at KPCC. UCLA is doing this great event called the Calculus of Comedy, where they're having a, a whole bunch of TV writers come and talk about the math and the Simpsons and Futurama and the Big Bang Theory. And that's happening at UCLA um, on October 25th. So I will tweet out on Admiral Hopper the link to that because I am definitely going to check it out. It just seems like such a cool event. Um, And I always love, you know, uh, fields that that we can look into and find all of the math geeks within, you know, <laughs> because we are everywhere. Totally. So I just thought that was a really, really fun event and mm-hmm. certainly relevant to uh, what I've been up to with a lot of my time lately. So, yeah, yay for math. Well, now you've set the bar high, Kate, because I'm going to expect you to be cracking jokes and waiting for my parabolic <laughs> laughter and then jumping back in with another punchline. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I will mm-hmm. I will do my best. So, Janet, I am guessing that you are also someone who is potentially excited about Global Mathematics Week and math in general, even though your uh, work leans more into uh, biochemistry and illustration. Uh, But I'm just curious, kicking off before we sort of dive in with you, what has your history of math been? What are your feelings about it? (laughs) Just just Uh, a general question Uh, for you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think about math in terms of, uh, I guess, the numbers of molecules and things. And I did have to sit down and, you know, calculate some, you know, the number of molecules in a mole and, you know, thinking about, (laughs) thinking about, like, basically, if you took a small chunk of a cell, um, how many molecules would be in there. Um, So, I, you know, math was something I did fairly recently. Oh, I love it. I, I, moles, when I hit those in chemistry, were so sort of obscure at first. And then when I figured out that it really was this mathematical calculation that you could do, I remember being so, so into them. <laughs> it was just so fun to do. Um, so, but, uh, but more about you. So you are a molecular animator, as well as a research assistant professor in the biochemistry department at the University of Utah. According to your bio, your broad goal is to create accurate and compelling molecular and cellular visualizations that will support research 
learning and scientific communication. This is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to our listeners what molecular animation is, what you're up to? Sure. So I think the general idea is that uh, I and others like me use 3D animation software to create these movies of how biologists think molecules do the work that they do within cells. Um, and for me specifically, um, so I'm using animation software in order, kind of more in the research sphere, um, to try and use it as a tool to integrate data from all of these different sources that we're getting um, information about, about biological systems in order to create what I call a visual hypothesis of how we think things work in cells. I love this so much because I am a self-proclaimed visual learner. I really believe that when I can see something, sure, I can learn things in lots of ways, but for to have that visual for me is always so crucial to be able to somehow just mm -hmm. really take it in and absorb it. Totally. Yeah. So I'm fascinated because, okay, your undergraduate degree was in biology and Asian studies. You double majored at Williams right. College. Uh -huh. And then you went on to do your PhD in cell biology at UCSF. Kate, go ahead. Um, so, Janet, I... <laughs> You know, it's actually really interesting. I, I now have a track record on our show of gushing over anyone who has spent any bit of time in my hometown of San Francisco. <laughs> there we um, go. Excellent. You, yes. I was just <laughs> going to then especially uh, plug UCSF as a place I spent a lot of time in as a kid um, because I had several ear surgeries there and I just spent a lot of time pounding the pavement of that campus. <laughs> Big fan. Uh, anyway. Or, uh, okay. uh, Yes, ex yes, Parnassus. Oh my gosh. Okay, yep. before this Okay, goes, back back on the rabbit trail. Sorry, okay, sorry. so here here's my question. Yes. Your biology interest has been, you know, clearly obvious for some time. So when did animation and 3D visualization into your world? How how did you end up focusing on molecular animation? Yeah, so, you know, when I started uh, my PhD program, I, I was pretty much, I think I was on this pretty typical route where I thought I was going to, be, you know, just go into research and, um, you know, I, I wasn't expecting to do anything related to animation or art or anything like that. Um, so I was in a lab that studied cell motility, so how cells crawl. And, you know, our understanding of, and so this happens a lot like in immune cells that have to crawl after bacteria and gobble them up and things like that. So they, there's a lot of like kind of crawling cells um, in, in the immune system, for example, but in other systems as well. Um, and we're interested in understanding basically the molecular mechanism that allows cells to crawl. Um, and so there are proteins that we know about involved in this process that are called actin. Um, they form these kind of long polymers inside the cell and it's a very like regulated process. Um, and so, you know, when we have a lot of information about how it works based on microscopy and biochemistry and, and all of these bits of data from lots of different labs over decades um, that basically kind of build a picture of this very dynamic uh, a kind of system that's constantly being built and rebuilt in order for this, this cell to crawl. Um, so that's that's what I was studying, and and the lab next door to me was studying. Um, it was the Vale lab, so I was in the Mullins lab, Dyke Mullins lab at UCSF, and right next door to us was the Ron Vale's lab, who was studying um, a motor protein, so a protein that was known to walk along these um, microtubules, which are considered sort of the highway of the cell, um, and carry things along with it. And they were studying basically how to, this this protein kinesin walks along uh, microtubules. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and so what they were they were studying this, and we actually had joint group meetings. And so what that meant was that every week I would go to a, um, a presentation that was given by usually a graduate student or a postdoc um, in in one of our labs, and people would just talk about what they were, you know, what their new findings were, what their research was about. And for the Bale Lab, a lot of people were talking about kinesin and how it walked. Um, and they, you know, they use their hands sometimes, and usually they just show their data, which is kind of like <laughs> black and white, you know, like graphs and stuff like that. And, yeah. uh, and they also draw these really um, kind of simplistic models where, like, you know, you use kind of um, like triangles to represent this part of the protein and like lines to represent this part, and you kind of show what you think is happening, and microtubes like a long line or something like that. It's very sim simplistic drawings. And, you know, so I watched a lot of these um, 
these sorts of presentations and and I felt like I was getting a pretty good idea of how everything worked and you know it all made sense and then they they um, Ron Vale decided that he wanted to create an animation of how he thought kinesin moved and this was based on some new structural data that um, that had just come out and so he hired an animator Graham Johnson uh, to create an animation of this kind of model of how they thought kinesin walked um, and so you know at the next group meeting after it was done, um, the student presented this animation in group meeting. And I remember just, you know, watching it and just being really amazed and dumbfounded. Like, you know, this makes so much more sense. Everything was kind of clicking in a way that, you know, things hadn't clicked before. Um, mm. And it made me just think, you know, this, this is how we think they actually look like. You know, this is how we think things actually operate. Why are we relying on these really kind of primitive ways of drawing things when we can animate them, when this actually tells the story so much better um, and so much kind of more accurately than anything else that, you know, that we have been doing up to that point. So that's when I got in, into animation. That is really cool. I love that you took us on that journey that led up to that big aha moment. Just, you know, picturing these scientists sort of speaking with hands and the and the papers and, and going, hmm, there's something more here, you know, and then seeing what it could be. I love that. You wrote an op-ed for the scientific journal Cell about the scientist as an illustrator, uh, where you said, from looking through the history of science, it might seem that being a polymath, which is a word that we love, of course, mm -hmm. was a major criteria for success. Scientific progress depended heavily not only on scientists' powers of observation and deduction, but also their talent at illustration. It follows that many acclaimed scientists in history were also highly skilled artists and draftsmen. And I just love, first of all, just to pause and talk about that point because, you know, we forget sometimes in our in our ideas of what we do in different fields of study, we forget that there are these, you know, multiple skills that are needed and that have been and were needed for a long period of time. Um, so we're curious, Janet, in today's era where we have, you know, such powerful technology to see cells and biological phenomena, why is illustration and 3D modeling still important for scientists? Yeah, so, you know, the, the kind of the scale at which um, I do animation is considered sort of an invisible. It's, 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 it's sort of not visible to us right now using our, with our current technology. Um, oh, wow. So this is basically, so molecules are generally smaller than the wavelength of light, which mm -hmm. means that we can never be able to directly observe them using light, like any kind of light microscope. You're not going to be able to directly observe like the shape and size of a molecule moving around within the context of a cell. Um, it's mm. just just not possible. Um, and so what we, in order to understand, like if you want to, you know, kind of think about how molecules move in cells within the context of a cell, like groups of molecules, you know, if you wanted to just kind of zoom in on a patch of a cell, um, we actually, in order to create this sort of a visualization, we need to combine a lot of different types of data. So we, we understand something about how molecules look based on a different, so not using light microscopy, but using other techniques like x-ray crystallography or cryo-electron microscopy. Basically, you have to use electrons or x-rays to be able to visualize the what proteins look like, what their structure is. And so wow. that gives us an idea of like the shape of a protein, of the, the, like the atomic structure, like the XYZ coordinates of the atoms. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, basically that's where we get the protein structures from in the animations. And using light microscopy, we can get an idea of basically how things move around in a live cell, where they are in the cell, maybe how many proteins there are in the cell. But using light microscopy, so basically this is a technique where you take a protein that you're interested in and you tag it with a fluorescent label um, like green fluorescent protein, some kind of fluorescent protein. And what this is kind of akin to is like if if I was the protein and I was standing, you know, like a mile away from you and I had this really, really bright flashlight, you'd be able <laughs> to see where I was because you could see that light, the point of mm -hmm. light that I was holding, the flashlight. But right. you could make out me. You couldn't see me, like the shape where I, you know, exactly what I look like. You wouldn't be able to make out my face, you know, because mm -hmm. I was I'm too far away. But you can mm -hmm. see the light and you can see if I'm carrying that light around. So that's what light microscopy can tell us. Um, and so from that we know... 
you know, the timing where proteins appear, when they appear, when they appear, you know, with other proteins. Um, and then we have like biochemistry that tells us um, how things basically attach to each other if they form a larger complex together. So anyway, you have to take all of these bits of data that a lot of different groups are producing in order to create this sort of a hypothesis. And so every, you know, kind of biologist who's studying some protein or a process has kind of a movie in their head based on all these bits of data from different labs and different groups and different papers um, mm. that kind of tie all of these things together to make a story. Um, and what the animation is really trying to do is basically take this hypothesis, take this idea, this idea of a process from somebody's mm -hmm. head, this researcher's head who's been thinking about it for years, maybe decades, and put it in this form take this movie and put it in a form where everyone can see it and share it and sort of criticize it, appreciate it. Um, that's really the idea. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. In my best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist with Christina Wallace and Kate Scott Campbell. Have your animations ever actually informed your research, like giving you insights or aha moments because you can finally see either you know, how things actually interact, or you can see what, as you said, what's in other people's heads? Um, or, or do you mostly just use them as a way of communicating your results in talks or publications? Right. I think it's definitely useful for both things. So, you know, the initial process of creating this animation, in my case, I'm, I'm trying to basically pull the information out of someone's head um, in order to create the animation, this I so I, I'm basically like interrogating a researcher about like how what they think is happening, and you know, and and again, it's based some of it's based on data, but some of it is based on sort of intuition or um, you know just kind of a guess of how to how these you know data points connect. Um, and so you know, I have to get a lot of information in order to create the animation, and a lot of the times it's just this this interrogation that makes people realize the holes in their in their hypothesis, the things that they don't understand. Um, and that that by itself, just that process of me trying to get this information has led people to you know suggest new experiments to their lab, um, have whole new experiments based on trying to fill these gaps. In understanding. In other cases, wow. you know, the animations um, reveal where people really disagree. So, you know, I c- can create an animation with one person, and that, you know, reflects his own hypothesis of how things work. But when you show it to the larger community who all study a pro- this process, mm-hmm. a lot of them will disagree with various aspects of the animation and say, you know, we have data that does- that shows that that's not true. Or, you know, like they'll basically understand more fully what you know, this mm-hmm. other person's hypothesis is, and that gives them ideas of, like, basically, is that consistent with my model? Is that not consistent? Um, it really is a way of generating a conversation in a way that I think is really difficult to do just using words or with these abstract um, sorts of visualizations. Um, sure. But, you know, in the end, I think, so that's how I think uh, animations can really help research. It can it can really highlight differences, and it can also show where people disagree. Like, I've also done things where I've animated, you know, several different competing hypotheses of, of how something might work. Um, and, you know, and each of them have some, you know, body of people that believe one of them or the other one, but they can all be experimentally tested. It's so fascinating to me, you know, Janet, I was looking around uh, your website, onemicron.com, at all these incredible illustrations. One looks like an avocado, almost. I mean, there's just these, like, incredible uh, different types of visualizations. And, and I noticed that, you know, a lot of them say in collaboration with, you know, a different scientist. And I, I'm so fascinated by that interrogation that you're talking about. It sounds like... Right. It sounds like, you know, you've had to develop this whole skill set of, you know, figuring out like what you need to know in order to be able to create this visual, you know, and I imagine that's a really interesting sort of 
evolving conversation. You know, how has that sort of evolved over time? Do you have a sort of a specific set of questions that you'll ask? Does it really depend on what you're what you're dealing with? Yeah, um, you know, in the beginning, um, the animations that I worked on were with my lab mates. So when I was in grad school, uh, you know, the first animations I made were all within the lab I worked in. And so, you know, all of these sorts of ideas were like very intimately familiar to me. I, I knew what they were studying and I knew kind of the ideas. Um, and since then, it's really expanded a lot. So I, I work a lot now with people like I've never actually met in person or um, you know, and subjects that I that I've never actually done any research in. Um, wow. So I, I think it has I it's definitely um, expanded my uh, you know my ability to sort of think about different processes because I have to I have to you know I talk to different people every every animation is on like a kind of a vastly different topic uh, yeah. within biology. Um, but yeah, so my interview kind of, um, I have like a very specific set of things I usually do. And the first step is typically like a Skype call where I will just, try, you know, if they're not local, um, where I mm -hmm. basically try to get an idea of what the story is. You know, what do they think the story is? And, you know, like without me necessarily even like digging into a bunch of like the scientific literature or something, I just want to get their take. Um, and what they think they've had trouble describing to people. So, you know, when they when they give presentations, what are the questions about? Are there a bunch of questions that make it clear that, you know, people didn't understand something? Um, is there a way to use the visualizations to better explain that idea? You know, usually after that, you know, once we have this sort of an idea of the story, then it's like the next call may be like this interrogation where I'm trying to really fill out everything um, that I, I can ask all the questions I can about every aspect of the animation that I can think of. And then I draw a storyboard. So that part is like very much like an animation studio like Pixar would. Uh, basically, I draw by hand what I think everything looks like, where oh my gosh. You know, the data is coming from, like basically changes in camera, you know, like things like that. Um, and, you know, if there's a narration, I would write that down, too. That's something I usually develop together with a collaborator, um, as well as a description of what's going on. If it's not clear from my drawing, you know, I'm not an artist, so sometimes it's, it's not the best um, illustration. And then after that, that goes back and forth. So there's a ton of back and forth, um, you know, between the collaborator and me making sure I'm capturing their ideas as accurately as I can. Um, and then it goes into the animation software and I start developing that. And after the, the first draft of the animation is, got is done, it goes through usually many iterations um, before it gets to the point where it's basically a final, a final version. And even after that, you know, a couple of years down the road, you know, the, basically the story has changed. There's new data. Um, right. Those things have to be revised. So you Absolutely. created animations for exhibits at the Museum of Science in Boston and for public presentations like your TED Talk and for publications like Nature and Science and the New York Times. How important are molecular visualizations for scientific communication to the general public? Is, is this a channel for helping us understand maybe really complex ideas that are relevant to our lives? I think um, so, yeah. Yeah, what kind of topics uh, have you, I mean, what, you know, what did you create for the New York Times or, or what kind of, um, you know, scientific storyboarding uh, do you do for kind of public communication? So uh, the New York Times piece was actually about the origins of life. So for my postdoc, I did this project um, with Jack Shostak at Mass General Hospital and the Museum of Science in Boston on the origins of life. So basically, how do scientists think that the first cells on Earth may have formed from kind of like, you know, the prebiotic soup, uh, from basically from <laughs> what is the birth of biology from chemistry? Um, and what would that, you know, what would that early cell look like that gave rise to all life on Earth? Um, and so there are a lot of different kind of hypotheses on, on how that may have come about or like what the stepping stones were um, evolutionarily um, in the history of, of life on Earth. Um, and so those were the things that I was animating. And some of those ideas, those stills from those animations went into the New York Times in order to basically uh, provide a visual handle. Yeah, in general, I think animations, 
you know, like the way I think about it more broadly is that in science, most of our work in biology, especially most of our work is publicly funded. We're funded by the NIH and the NSF. These we're basically being paid from tax dollars, people's tax dollars. Um, and we have, uh, you know, we have this sort of obligation to explain our research and, and kind of the significance of it to the public. And that's hard, at, at, you know, when you're looking at molecules, you know, you mm. can't just get the publication and be like, yeah, that, you know, it's, it's really hard for, I think, a member of the public to do that, um, to look at this kind of very dense paper, if it's even accessible to them, like they can download it or something, um, to be able to read it and appreciate it. And I'm That is true. Have, I don't understand anything in those scientific journals. <laughs> I mean, they're very... Dense. Yeah. Janet, in 2012, you were named to Fast Company's list of most creative people, which is awesome. And you mentioned in that interview the challenges you've had with commercial 3D visualization software, that it, you know, it was crude and unwieldy. And that frustration was the inspiration for you to develop an open source program for simpler 3D molecular animation in 2014 called Molecular Flipbook, which was funded by the National Science Foundation. That is so cool. Can you tell us more about that program and how you developed it and how you sort of also figured out to take the initiative to develop it in the first place? Right, so I think that the idea for Molecular Flipbook came out of my experience of working with lots of different biologists and basically, you know, this realization that you know, animation can be great for communication, but what I was finding more was that, you know, animation allows you to, you know, be creative about thinking about your hypothesis. It's, it's sort of this way of being able to explore a hypothesis in, in a way that I think no, no other uh, existing kind of tool allows you to. Um, mm -hmm. But in order to take advantage of that, you know, it's better not to have basically the animator do it, but to have the researcher be the animator, have the researcher be the one who's actually creating everything and manipulating these things on the screen or whatever. Um, but the problem is that the animation software that I use and, and most people use in like animation studios is really hard to learn. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I use a software called Maya, which is considered sort of uh, the industry standard in Hollywood. Um, and I, I spent three months in Hollywood learning it, like a class that I took from nine to five every single day for 10 weeks straight for one oh my piece of software. <laughs> and I still, you know, was like barely, you know, able to do things after that. So it was, it was you know, people use, take years uh, to really mm -hmm. master it. Um, but at any rate, this is not the kind of thing that it's easy for a researcher who's working at the bench to be able to just sit down and learn the software. It's, it's basically not it's not that feasible for most people. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah, animation is, I think it's important uh, to be able to, to use, to be able to think about things more clearly. Um, and so the idea for Flipbook is really to try and create the software that would democratize animation, that would allow researchers to have a software that was made for molecular animation um, and would, uh, it would, would be intuitive to them and would be easy to learn, like really lower that learning curve and, and allow them to start making these models. Um, so that, that was basically the idea for Flipbook. Have you done any coding before this? Or, or you know, you've already mentioned you don't really consider yourself an artist. Um, it feels like, I guess I'm just stunned. It feels like the the bar to kind of jump over and not just say I'm going to learn how to use a software, but I'm going to go and develop a, a simpler <laughs> open source software package for other scientists. It seems like it would be uh, terrifying, and yet you you just did this. Like, well, so I wrote a grant. <laughs> I wrote a grant um, to basically fund programmers to help me do this. So so okay. I wasn't actually doing the coding. I was the okay. one who was basically saying, you know, like, this is the way I think the software would work. This is the way I think biologists think about their their the system. So this is the way biologists would want it to work. So I was kind of mm. more the UI designer and sort of explaining how I thought everything should be laid out in order to make it intuitive to biologists. Um, so, yeah, it. I wasn't doing the coding. I think that, yeah, that's, uh, that would I mean, it, it's still impressive, but at least yeah. it's feasible. 
Um, that's so in, in impressive, though. I mean, especially that kind of realizing the pain point, not just the power of the software, that, you know, you, you saw the opportunity for, you know, really kind of taking your research and your communication of it to the next level through animation, but then acknowledging that this wasn't a tool that was accessible to other scientists, really, and you wanted mm-hmm. to fix that. I, I think that's that initiative is really impressive um and especially in a world that you know where where you don't code and you have to work with other developers to make this happen to go and write a grant and and develop that is just really i'm stunned i'm also impressed uh, uh i was gonna say i'm also very impressed and i'm curious janet like how your idea of you know the work that you thought you'd be doing when you, you know, were pursuing your education to be doing what you're doing, um, it contrasts with what you're doing now. Has there been a point where, you know, you've gone, oh my gosh, I'm creating, you know, animation software. This is not what I thought I would be doing. Uh, Have there been points where you've sort of had to reframe your identity in your work life or uh, you know has it felt just like a very organic progression based on the through line of your your research interest right I I feel like I'm just and you know like I feel like a lot of people are doing this you're just kind of figuring it out as you go Um, you know like when I was in grad school and thinking about animation as a career I didn't know anybody else who was doing this. I, I didn't, I didn't, hadn't heard, you know, I talked to Graham Johnson, who was a person who made the Kinesian animation, um, was doing animation, but when, like, within a sort of a, a, a private kind of studio kind of thing. And I wanted to basically be an academic, like, basically, a, a, you know, a faculty member at a university doing animation, because I thought this was absolutely essential for us to do better research. Uh, and that kind of position, I had never heard of anyone having that kind of thing, or even you know this idea of doing an animation postdoc, which is the Origins of Life um, project I was telling you about, and, and getting funded by NSF to do, basically train, go to Hollywood, <laughs> train in animation. Like that, none of that is, is anything that I had heard of other people doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like I, I felt like this is what I had to do. Um, and and I didn't I didn't have any like backup plan of like what else I would do if this failed. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I was just very single minded about like this is this is what I want to do. This is important. And I think that kind of um, this sort of like confidence, I guess, or or just like single mindedness, mm-hmm. um, helped me convince other people that it was also necessary and important. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, and that's that's helped me along the way. So every. You know, since my postdoc, every job I've had, it's not something I actually applied for. It was something that had to be created for me. Um, so it's it's been sort of an interesting road <laughs> in that there, it, there isn't really a career path here. It's just something that's I feel like I'm kind of making up as I go along uh, based on what I think needs to happen. Well, so that explains cool. why you're a TED Fellow, because one <laughs> of the that has been consistent among the TED Fellows we've had on the show, um, as well as many of our other guests. I remember we had this conversation with Kara, um, uh, Kara DeFrias, around this idea that when you're doing something that doesn't exist yet, you can't apply for jobs. You, you need jobs to be created for you. You need to kind of carve your own path, which is both really exciting and also really terrifying sometimes right it's not clear that there is a path in front of you until you kind of take out the machete and and you know weed whack a little (laughs) yeah no it can definitely be scary um like just it's you know you you, there aren't a ton of role models out there um yeah Mm So tell us about some of your ongoing projects now. Now you've got your software up and running. You've done um, really cool things like the cell image library. What are you currently working on? So the major projects I'm working on now are mostly kind of grant-funded projects. Um, the, the biggest one is called the Science of HIV project. Mm-hmm. And it's basically where I'm working with a large number of researchers uh, who study HIV uh, to create this animation of the life cycle of HIV at a molecular scale. Um, and so the goal of it is really the, about communication and trying to make research accessible, trying to convey to the public how much we actually understand 
about about HIV in this case. Um, you know, there's just so much data out there that I feel like isn't getting communicated very well to the public. And so this is a is really kind of an effort to try and give back um, some of this information. Um, and yes. another project, yeah, sorry. No, I was just gonna say that's that's fascinating. Yeah, and the the plan is for this um, this animation to get released in the spring of next year. Um, and there's another project that I wanted to talk about too. That's called uh, the Quorum Project, Project Quorum. And this is actually a, a project to create a game. Uh, and this is actually with two the two other um, people involved in the project and leading the project are two other TED fellows. So that's been really great. So one of them, Kelly Santiago, is a game developer. Um, and the other one person, Jimmy Lin, is a cancer researcher. So we're trying to create this game that would allow people to help scientists analyze uh, image data. So in, in my case, I'm thinking about cell biology and microscopy images of cells and, and basically being able to trace these um, and help scientists be able to kind of extract information from these images. And in Jimmy's case, he's interested in looking at cancer data and so he wants people to help him uh, be able to go through a lot of this uh, this kind of basically changes in the genome that happen in cancers and be able to trace where that happens and um, yeah so that's kind of the idea and we're hoping to release this game uh, in the winter. Janet, I'm curious about when you take on a project like these or any new project, do you have a sense of timeline for that project, for how long, you know, you will be a part of it? It, it feels like what you're working on, certainly some of these big topics could potentially have no end, right? <laughs> uh, so how do you sort of know, you know, in terms of mapping out your schedule, your upcoming year, year, sort of how, how much you will be or for how long you will be engaged in these projects? So that's actually pretty well defined if you have to write a grant. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, you know, within a grant, you you have to say, I'm going to spend this percent of my full-time effort towards this project for, you know, four years, because that's how much, the you know, the grant is being funded for four years or five right. years or whatever. Uh, so usually it's pretty well defined. So my percent FTE, as they call it, is like split amongst several projects of, of which these are the two major ones right now. Mm. Um, but, you know, so and the hope is some of these things will get renewed. So the HIV project just got renewed for another five years. Oh, wow. um, so I'll continue. Basically, I, I'm releasing this this large animation of the HIV life cycle. But there's constantly new research that's happening. And some of the things in that animation are probably going to end up being wrong. And so they'll have to be sort of revamped. And I can keep on going and basically add new bits to it as we discover new things. Very you live cool. your life on such a different timeline than I do. Like <laughs> signing up for five-year research grants. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a commitment for sure. Um, but, you know, like I think everyone is excited when that happens in science. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it just yeah. it reminds me, Kate, if you remember back to our very first episode with Bob Ackfordowski at NASA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talking about, you know, 10-year projects getting rovers to Mars and, and other places. Um, yeah. That's, that's amazing. And, I'm you know, it's so wonderful that you're able to get funded for, for with that kind of runway so that you're not thinking year to year like a lot of nonprofits are when they're raising money or, um, you know, uh, funding round to funding round like startups do. Right. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, definitely one of the great things about being in academia is that, you know, for me, I, I really get to invest in, in a project and in like a, in an area of biology and really dig into that um, because it just takes a while to even get to understand what, you know, what people are doing and what's known and what's not known. Sure. Um, so that that amount of time has been really great for me. What kind of advice would you give young science students today who might have an interest in art or visual design or animation? Are, are there ways to integrate art and science beyond maybe just the animation outlet you found? And are there classes or opportunities to kind of bring this into their, their training earlier than their PhD program? Yeah, so I think um, right now in many graduate programs, you know, students aren't really trained at all to do visualizations, whether it's data visualization, so like graphs, and you know, like basically how do we visualize multi-dimensional data, high throughput data, you know, there isn't a ton of training in that. 
Um, and there isn't a ton of training in, in the kind of things I do, like thinking about model figures and these sorts of animations. So I think, you know, definitely that would be great if that was better integrated into a graduate program. And in general, I think most students coming in don't have much kind of art background or training, or if they do, they kind of hide it, you know, so they don't, <laughs> they don't really, uh, they don't really get to practice it very much, which is a shame. Um, but in terms of kind of a career path, there are careers that allow people to really integrate those kinds of things. So the probably the most well-known is programs in medical illustration. Um, there are programs scattered around the country and in Canada, um, and this allows people who mostly have kind of a background in art um, to learn about medical illustration. So how do you, you know, make a surgery something that um, is something that people can understand, you know, from a picture, you might not be able to understand what's going on, but with an illustration from a skilled illustrator, you'd be able to see very clearly, you know, what, what a surgeon is doing. So that kind of thing. But now they're also going more into the molecular scale as well. So that's someplace where you can get more formal training and a degree. And a lot of people from those programs go on to illustrate textbooks or, um, you know, and create animations within uh, smaller studios and things like that. Very cool. So, you know, we've been talking about taking on these these lengthy projects. And of course, that's relatively speaking, right? But but calling something like five years a, a commitment. Where do you hope your work will take you in, say, 10 years from now? Uh, Janet, how do you see, you know, this work either sustaining or evolving in your life? Yeah, so I, you know, the way, what I hope is that, you know, maybe further down the road, I guess I don't, I don't know about like 10 years, but, you know, <laughs> hopefully sooner than that. Um, I, I work mostly solo. Uh, so mm. I've been working mostly uh, by myself on, on a variety of projects. And, you know, like what I've been looking forward to is someday uh, in the near future, and it's starting, it's beginning to start now, um, working in a larger group on, mm. on, a, on a major project, on a big project. Um, so I'm, I'm right now, I'm collaborating with the Allen Institute of cell science for cell science in Seattle to on an animated cell project on a project basically to try and create a cell that's animated um, so that's really mm. exciting um, but in general I think yeah being able to work together with other people who think similarly who are um, but on a kind of a bigger uh, a bigger project I think would be really exciting um, working more on the software development side and you know flipbook was a prototype and I think in order mm. to make it is really some a tool that, that all researchers can use, we need to take it further um, than we were able to. We need to really integrate more with people who are doing software development. Um, so that's, that's another kind of place. Um, and in general, I'm interested in thinking about how we can better train researchers to communicate science better. Well, I have a maybe far out there suggestion for a big project uh, that is, a, you know, a slightly, slightly bigger ambition. You know, we had someone from Pixar on our show, Daniel Feinberg, and I just now that I've seen these very friendly cells, uh, including the avocado looking one, Kate, you're right. It does look like an avocado. <laughs> I am. I'm inclined I to, to look think up what you're talking about. <laughs> it's I, yes. I'm inclined to think Pixar <laughs> should make uh, a cell animated movie, right? Don't they look very friendly? Couldn't we, we animate <laughs> some science? I just I feel like you could be a really great science advisor to a, oh. a you know m molecule cell based drama in our bodies uh, <laughs> produced by Pixar. I'm just throwing I would it take out there. That job. I would take that job. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I can totally see that. And what I love about your work, Janet, is that, you know, it it is so helpful for people at all levels, right? For mm -hmm. high-level researchers, for, like, just thinking about being able to see an animated cell when I was in high school, that would have mm -hmm. really changed probably how I felt about biology at the time and my understanding of it. And so, yeah, I, I'm on board with you, Christina. Uh, I'm just, well, there we go. We, we can make some connections. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I, I think Christina, that it is time for what we the like to call round. on the show, the I lightning know. round.
This is a, a very quick round of about five questions um, that we are just going to uh, throw out there, and you can answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Um, no need to explain or give a defense of your choices, and we will do our best not to ask follow-up questions. Okay. Yes. It, which is difficult for us. We always want to know it more. <laughs> Kate, do you want to kick it off? Yes. Uh, are you ready, Janet? I think so. <laughs> Good. Okay, question number one. What are you reading right now? Uh, like what's in front of me right now? Well, <laughs> I, have a, I have a textbook. It's really not very interesting. Oh, um, no, I would love to know what that textbook is about. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a cell biology textbook. It's called Cell Biology. <laughs> it's a good title for yeah. a cell biology textbook. Oh, <laughs> Um, okay, question two. What was the last thing that made you go, oh, no? Huh. <laughs> it was probably my son getting being being called to pick up my son because he was sick yesterday. So. Oh. oh, my gosh. Okay. Feeling like better? Yeah. Yes, yes. He was, oh. he was sick. So. It is sort of the fall. It's that time for those little yeah. things to go around. Yeah. Um, other than biology and animation, what's something else that's in your human Venn diagram? And that's what we like to call sort of the collection of interests that you that you hold. What's something else that you're into or curious about? I like crafty stuff. So I used to be really into knitting and like I would spin my own yarn. I still wow. have my spinning wheel. Uh, so I was really into that. I haven't so it's something I put down for the time being, but I'm going to get back into it. Um, uh, we have chickens. I have, uh, oh yeah, I'm thinking now, um, I like baking cakes. Um, yeah, I think I like traveling. I like going to nice restaurants. <laughs> There we go. I, that is a great Venn diagram. And it's interesting. We Seriously. had a physicist on the show, Stefan Alexander from Brown, who also said knitting. And I've been so wanting to get into knitting myself. I'm going to I'm gonna take it's that. It's very mathematical. Happy people it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Love it. Uh, okay. Question four. You're doing so well. What is uh, your favorite thing about Utah? You know the out outdoor stuff. I think that's kind of like too easy because <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's so beautiful here and it's so easy to just get outside into the mountains, which are beautiful all year round. Um, but yeah, it's definitely the outdoor stuff is pretty great. Um, but I also love it here at the University of Utah. It's been a great place to work. Super supportive. Um, yeah. So the work environment's great. The mountains are great. <laughs> can't complain. <laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a perfect equation right there. I love it. Um, okay, final question, Janet. Uh, can you give a shout out for a woman who's doing awesome things in biology uh, uh, or in, you know, the animation of biology? Maybe someone who's a little bit under the radar and you just want to give a little extra love to. Oh, boy. Um, under the radar. Or, you know, yeah, who maybe wasn't, like, on the cover of Time Magazine last week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess the person I was thinking of may have been on the cover of Time Magazine last week. <laughs> That's okay, too. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm really excited um, about, like, CRISPR-related stuff and, oh, and stuff that, story. like, Jennifer Doudna is working on. And, um, you know, I think she's just a great role model for scientists, uh, especially women scientists in terms of, um, being a great scientist, also having a family. Um, yeah, I, I really have a lot of respect for her. Well, we oh. have so much respect for you and all the work you're doing. It has been fascinating to hear about it, Janet. Totally. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Bye. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.